Chapter One of Susan B. Anthony, Rebel, Crusader, Humanitarian. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Phyllis Vincelli. Susan B. Anthony, Rebel, Crusader, Humanitarian by Alma Lutz. Chapter One Quaker Heritage. If Sally Ann knows more about weaving than Elijah, reasoned eleven year old Susan with her father, then why don't you make her overseer? It would never do, replied Daniel Anthony as a matter of course. It would never do to have a woman overseer in the mill. This answer did not satisfy Susan, and she often thought about it. To enter the mill, to stand quietly and look about, was the best kind of entertainment, for she was fascinated by the whir of the looms, by the nimble fingers of the weavers, and by the general air of efficiency. Admiringly, she watched Sally Ann Hyatt, the tall, capable weaver from Vermont. When the yarn on the beam was tangled or there was something wrong with the machinery, Elijah, the overseer, always called out to Sally Ann, I'll tend your loom if you'll look after this. Sally Ann never failed to locate the trouble or to untangle the yarn, yet she was never made overseer, and this continued to puzzle Susan. The manufacture of cotton was a new industry, developing with great promise in the United States when Susan B. Anthony was born on February 15, 1820, in the wide valley at the foot of Mount Greylock near Adams, Massachusetts. Enterprising young men like her father, Daniel Anthony, saw a potential cotton mill by the side of every rushing brook and young women, eager to earn the first money they could call their own, were leaving the farms, for a few months at least, to work in the mills. Cotton cloth was the new sensation, and the demand for it was steadily growing. Brides were proud to display a few cotton sheets instead of commonplace homespun linen. When Susan was two years old, her father built a cotton factory of twenty-six looms beside the brook, which ran through Grandfather Reed's meadow, hauling the cotton forty miles by wagon from Troy, New York. The mill workers, most of them young girls from Vermont, boarded, as was the custom, in the home of the mill owner, Susan's mother, Lucy Reed Anthony, although she had three small daughters to care for, Guelma, Susan, and Hannah, boarded eleven of the mill workers with only the help of a thirteen-year-old girl who worked for her after school hours. Lucy Anthony cooked their meals on the hearth of the big kitchen fireplace, and in the large brick oven beside it baked crisp brown loaves of bread. In addition, washing, ironing, mending and spinning filled her days but she was capable and strong 
and was doing only what all women in this new country were expected to do. She taught her young daughters to help her, and Susan, even before she was six, was very useful. By the time she was ten, she could cook a good meal and pack a dinner pail. Hard work and skill were respected as Susan grew up in the rapidly expanding young republic which less than fifty years before had been founded and fought for. Settlers, steadily pushing westward, had built new states out of the wilderness, adding ten to the original thirteen. Everywhere the leaven of democracy was working, and men were putting into practice many of these principles so boldly stated in the Declaration of Independence, claiming for themselves equal rights and opportunities. The new states entered the Union with none of the traditional property and religious limitations on the franchise but with manhood suffrage and all voters eligible for office. The older states soon fell into line, Massachusetts in 1820 removing property qualifications for voters. Before long, throughout the United States, all free white men were enfranchised, leaving only women, Negroes, and Indians without the full rights of citizenship. Although women freeholders had voted in some of the colonies, and in New Jersey as late as 1807, just as in England, in the 15th franchise, had gradually found its way into the statutes, and women's rights as citizens were ignored, in spite of the contribution they had made to the defense and development of the new nation. However, European travelers among them de Tocqueville, recognized that the survival of the New World experiment in government and the prosperity and strength of the people were due in large measure to the superiority of American women. A few women had urged their claims. Abigail Adams asked her husband, a member of the Continental Congress, to remember the ladies and the new code of laws and Hannah Lee Corbin of Virginia pleaded with her brother, Richard Henry Lee, to make good the principle of no taxation without representation by enfranchising widows with property. Yet the legal bondage of women continued to be overlooked. It seemed a less obvious threat to free institutions and democratic government than the Negro in slavery. In fact, Negro slavery presented a problem which demanded attention again and again, flaring up alarmingly in 1820, the year Susan B. Anthony was born, when Missouri was admitted to the Union as a slave state. These were some of the forces at work in the minds of Americans during Susan's childhood. Her father, a liberal Quaker, was concerned over the extension of slavery, and she often heard him say that he tried to avoid purchasing cotton raised by slave labor. This early impression of the evil of slavery was never erased. The Quaker's respect for women's equality with men before God also left its mark on young Susan, 
as soon as she was old enough she went regularly to meeting with her father for all of the anthonys were quakers they had migrated to western massachusetts from rhode island and there on the frontier had built prosperous farms comfortable homes and a meeting-house where they could worship god in their own way susan sitting with the women and children on the hand-hewn benches near the big fireplace in the meeting-house which her ancestors had built found peace and consecration in the simple unordered service in the long reverent silence broken by both the men and the women in the congregation as they were led to say a prayer or give out a helpful message forty families now worshipped here the women sitting on one side and the men on the other but women took their places with men in positions of honor susan's own grandmother hannah latham anthony an elder sitting in the high seat and her aunt hannah anthony hoxie preaching as the spirit moved her with this valuation of women accepted as a matter of course in her church and family circle susan took it for granted that it existed everywhere although her father was a devout friend she discovered that he had the reputation of thinking for himself following the inner light even when its leading differed from the considered judgment of his fellow quakers for this he became a hero to her especially after she heard the romantic story of his marriage to lucy reed who was not a quaker the anthonys and the reeds had been neighbors for years and Lucy was one of the pupils at the home school which Grandfather Humphrey Anthony had built for his children on the farm under the weeping willow at the front gate. Daniel and Lucy were schoolmates until Daniel, at nineteen, was sent to Richard Mott's friend's boarding school at Nine Partners on the Hudson. When he returned as a teacher, he found his old playmate still one of the pupils, but now a beautiful, tall young woman with deep blue eyes and glossy brown hair, full of fun, a good dancer, and always dressed in the prettiest clothes, she was the most popular girl in the neighborhood. Promptly Daniel Anthony fell in love with her, but an almost insurmountable obstacle stood in the way. Quakers were not permitted to marry out of meeting. This, however, did not deter Daniel. It was harder for Lucy to make up her mind. She enjoyed parties, dances, and music. She had a full, rich voice, and as she sat at her spinning wheel, singing and spinning, she often wished that she could go into a ten-acre lot with the bars down and let her voice out. If she married Daniel, she would have to give all this up but she decided in favor of Daniel. A few nights before the wedding, she went to her last party and danced until four in the morning while Daniel looked on and patiently waited until she was ready to leave. For his transgression of marrying out of meeting, Daniel had to face the elders as soon as he returned from his wedding trip. They weighed the matter carefully, 
found him otherwise sincere and earnest, and decided not to turn him out. Lucy gave up her dancing and her singing. She gave up her pretty, bright-colored dresses for plain, somber clothes. But she did not adopt the Quaker dress or use the plain speech. She went to meeting with Daniel, but never became a Quaker, feeling always that she could not live up to their strict standard of righteousness. This was Susan's heritage, Quaker discipline and austerity lightened by her father's independent spirit and by the kindly understanding of her mother, who had not forgotten her own fun-loving girlhood, an environment where men and women were partners in church and at home, where hard physical work was respected, where help for the needy and unfortunate was spontaneous and where education was regarded as so important that Grandfather Anthony built a school for his children and the neighbors in his front yard. Her childhood was close enough to the Revolution to make Grandfather Reed's part in it very real and a source of great pride. Eagerly and often she listened to the story of how he enlisted in the Continental Army as soon as the news of the Battle of Lexington reached Cheshire and served with outstanding bravery under Arnold at Quebec, Ethan Allen at Ticonderoga, and Colonel Stafford at Bennington, while his young wife waited anxiously for him throughout the long years of the war. The wide valley in the Berkshire Hills, where Susan grew up, made a lasting impression on her. There was beauty all about her, the fruit trees blooming in the spring, the meadows white with daisies, the brook splashing over the rocks and sparkling in the summer sun, the flaming colors of autumn, the strength and companionship of the hills when the countryside was white with snow she seldom failed to watch the sun set behind Greylock. Her father's cotton mill flourished. Regarded as one of the most promising, successful young men of the district, he soon attracted the attention of Judge John McLean, a cotton manufacturer of Battenville, New York, who, eager to enlarge his mills, saw in Daniel Anthony an able manager. Daniel always ready to take the next step ahead, accepted McLean's offer, and on a sunny July day in 1826, Susan drove with her family through the hills of 44 miles to the new world of Battenville. Here in the home of Judge McLean, she saw Negroes for the first time, Negroes working to earn their freedom. Startled by their black faces, she was a little afraid, but when her father explained that in the South they could be sold like cattle and torn from their families, her fear turned to pity. At the district school, taught by a woman in summer and by a man in the winter, she learned to sew, spell, read and write, and she wanted to study long division, but the schoolmaster, unable to teach it, saw no reason why a woman should care for such knowledge. Her father, then realizing the need of better education for his five children, Guelma, Susan, Hannah, 
daniel and mary established a school for them in the new brick building where he had opened a store later on when their new brick house was finished he set aside a large room for the school and here for the first time in that district the pupils had separate seats stools without backs instead of the usual benches around the schoolroom walls he engaged as teachers young women who had studied a year or two in a female seminary and because female seminaries were rare in those days women teachers with up-to-date training were hard to find only a few visionaries believed in the education of women nearby emma willard's recently established troy female seminary was being watched with interest and suspicion mary lyon who had not yet founded her own seminary at mount holyoke was teaching at zilpha grant's school in ipswich massachusetts and one of her pupils mary perkins came to battenville to teach the anthony children mary perkins brought new methods and new studies to the little school she introduced a primer with small black illustrations which fascinated susan she taught the children to recite poetry drilled them regularly in calisthenics and longed to add music as well but daniel anthony forbade this for quakers believed that music might seduce the thoughts of the young so susan although she often had a song in her heart had to repress it and never knew the joy of singing the songs of childhood her father looking upon the mill workers as part of his family started an evening school for them often teaching it himself or calling in the family teacher he organized a temperance society among the workers and all signed a pledge never to drink distilled liquor when he opened a store in the new brick building he refused to sell liquor although judge mclean warned him it would ruin his trade daniel anthony went even further he resolved not to serve liquor when the mill workers houses were built and the neighbors came to the raising again judge mclean protested feeling certain that the men and boys would demand their gin and their rum but susan and her sisters helped their mother serve lemonade tea coffee doughnuts and gingerbread in abundance the men joked a bit about the lack of strong drink which they expected with every meal but they did not turn away from the good substitutes which were offered and they were on hand for the next raising hearing all of this discussed at home susan again proud of her father ardently advocated the cause of temperance the mill was still of great interest to her and she watched every operation closely in her spare time longing to try her hand at the work one day when a spooler was ill susan and her sister hannah eagerly volunteered to take her place their father was ready to let them try pleased by their interest and curious to see what they could do but their mother protested that the mill was no place for children finally susan's earnest pleading won her mother's reluctant consent and the two girls drew lots for the job 
It went to twelve-year-old Susan on the condition that she divide her earnings with Hannah. Every day for two weeks she went early to the mill in her plain homespun dress, her straight hair neatly parted and smoothed over her ears. Proudly she tended the spools. She was skillful and quick, and received the regular wage of a dollar fifty a week, which she divided with Hannah, buying with her share six pale blue coffee cups for her mother, who had allowed her this satisfying adventure. A few weeks before her thirteenth birthday, Susan became a member of the Society of Friends, which met in nearby Easton, New York, and learned to search her heart and ask herself, Art thou faithful? Parties, dancing, and entertainments were generally ruled out of her life as sinful, and rarely were a temptation. But occasionally her mother, remembering her own good times, let her and her sisters go to parties at the homes of their Presbyterian neighbors, and for this her father was criticized at friends' meeting. Condemning bright colors, frills, and jewelry as vain and worldly, Susan accepted plain, somber clothing as a mark of righteousness. And when she deviated to the extent of wearing the scotch plaid coat which her mother had bought her, she wondered if the big rent torn in it by a dog might not be deserved punishment for her pride in wearing it. That same year, the family moved into their new brick house of fifteen rooms, with hard-finished plaster walls and light green woodwork, the finest house in that part of the country. Here Susan's brother Merritt was born, the next April, and her two-year-old sister Eliza died. Susan, Guelma, and Hannah continued their studies longer than most girls in the neighborhood, for Quakers not only encouraged but demanded education for both boys and girls. As soon as Susan and her sister Guelma were old enough, they taught the home school in the summer when the younger children attended, and then went further afield to teach in nearby villages. At fifteen, Susan was teaching a district school for a dollar fifty a week and board, and although it was hard for her to be away from home, she accepted it as a friend's duty to provide good education for children. Now Presbyterian neighbors criticized her father, protesting that well-to-do young ladies should not venture into paid work. Daniel Anthony was now a wealthy man, his factory the largest and most prosperous in that part of the country, and he could afford more and better education for his daughters. He sent Guelma, the eldest, to Deborah Molson's Friends Seminary near Philadelphia, where for $125 a year the inculcation of the principles of humility, morality, and virtue received particular attention and when Guelma was asked to stay on a second year as a teacher, he suggested that Susan join her there as a pupil. It was a long journey from Battenville to Philadelphia in 1837, and when Susan left her home on a snowy afternoon with her father, she felt as if the parting would be forever. 
her first glimpse of the world beyond battenville interested her immensely until her father left her at the seminary and then she confessed to her diary oh what pangs were felt it seemed impossible for me to part with him i could not speak to bid him farewell she tried to comfort herself by writing letters and wrote so many and so much that Guelma often exclaimed, Susan, thee writes too much. Thee should learn to be concise. As it was a rule of the seminary that each letter must first be written out carefully on a slate, inspected by Dever Molson, then copied with care, inspected again, and finally sent out after four or five days of preparation, all spontaneity was stifled, and her letters were stilted and over-virtuous. This censorship left its mark, and years later she confessed, Whenever I take my pen in hand, I always seem to be mounted on stilts. To her diary she could confide her real feelings, her discouragement over her lack of improvement and her inability to understand her many sins, such as not dotting an I, too much laughter, or smiling at her friends instead of reproving them for frivolous conduct. She wrote, Thought so much of my resolutions to do better in the future that even my dreams were filled with these desires. Although I have been guilty of much levity and nonsensical conversation, and have also admitted thoughts to occupy my mind which should have been far distant from it, I do not consider myself as having committed any willful offense, but perhaps the reason I cannot see my own defects is because my heart is hardened. The girls studied a variety of subjects, arithmetic, algebra, literature, chemistry, philosophy, physiology, astronomy, and bookkeeping. Men came to the school to conduct some of the classes, and Deborah Molson was also assisted by several student teachers, one of whom, Lydia Mott, became Susan's lifelong friend. Susan worked hard, for she was a conscientious child, but none of her efforts seemed to satisfy Deborah Molson, who was a hard taskmaster. Her reproofs cut deep, and once when Susan protested that she was always censured while Guelma was praised, Deborah Molson sternly replied, Thy sister, Guelma, does the best she is capable of, but thou dost not. Thou hast greater abilities, and I demand of thee the best of thy capacity. Mail from home was a bright spot, bringing into those busy, austere days news of her friends, and when she read that one of them had married an old widower with six children, she reflected sagely, I should think any female would rather live and die an old maid. Then came word that her father's business had been so affected by the financial depression that the family would have to give up their home in Battenville. Sorrowfully, she wrote in her diary, Oh, can I ever forget that loved residence in Battenville, 
and no more to call it home seems impossible. It helped little to realize that countless other families throughout the country were facing the future penniless because banks had failed, mills were shut down, and work on canals and railroads had ceased. In April 1838, Daniel Anthony came to the seminary to take his daughters home. Susan felt keenly her father's sorrow over the failure of his business and the loss of the home he had built for his family, and she resolved at once to help out by teaching in Union Village, New York. In May 1838, she wrote in her diary, On last evening, I again left my home to mingle with strangers, which seems to be my sad lot. Separation was rendered more trying on account of the embarrassing condition of our business affairs. An inventory was expected to be taken today of our furniture by assignees. Spent this day in school, found it small and quite disorderly. Oh, may my patience hold out to persevere without intermission. Her patience did hold out and also her courage, as the news came from home telling her how everything had to be sold to satisfy the creditors, the furniture, her mother's silver spoons, their clothing and books, the flour, tea, coffee, and sugar in the pantries. She rejoiced to hear that Uncle Joshua Reed from Palatine Bridge, New York, had come to the rescue had bought their most treasured and needed possessions and turned them over to her mother. On a cold, blustery March day in 1839, when she was nineteen, Susan moved with her family two miles down the Battenkill to the little settlement of Hardscrabble, later called Center Falls, where her father owned a satinette factory and gristmill, built in more prosperous times. These were now heavily mortgaged, but he hoped to save them. They moved into a large house, which had been a tavern in the days when lumber had been cut around Hardscrabble. It was disappointing after their fine brick house in Battenville, but they made it comfortable, and their love for and loyalty to each other made them a happy family anywhere. As it had been a halfway house on the road to Troy, and travelers continued to stop there, asking for a meal or a night's lodging, they took them in, and young Daniel served them food and non-intoxicating drinks at the old tavern bar. Susan, when her school term was over, put her energies into housework, recording in her diary, did a large washing today, spent today at the spinning wheel, baked twenty-one loaves of bread, wove three yards of carpet yesterday. The attic of the tavern had been finished off for a ballroom, with bottles laid under the floor to give a nice tone to the music of the fiddles, and now the young people of the village wanted to hold their dancing school there. Susan's father, true to his Quaker training, felt obliged to refuse. But when they came the second time to tell him that the only other place available was a disreputable tavern where liquor was sold, he relented a little, 
talk the matter over with his wife and daughters. Lucy Anthony, recalling her love of dancing, urged him to let the young people come. Finally he consented, on the condition that Guelma, Hannah, and Susan would not dance. They agreed. Every two weeks all through the winter, the fiddles played in the attic room, and the boys and girls of the neighborhood danced the Virginia Reel and their rounds and squares, while the three Quaker girls sat around the wall, watching and longing to join in the fun. Such frivolous entertainment in the home of a Quaker could not be condoned, and Daniel Anthony was not only severely censured by the friends, but read out of meeting, because he kept a place of amusement in his house. But he did not regret his so-called sin any more than he regretted marrying out of meeting. He continued to attend friends' meeting, but grew more and more liberal as the years went by. At this time, like all Quakers, he refused to vote, not wishing in any way to support a government that believed in war. And this influenced Susan, who for some years regarded voting as unimportant. He refused to pay taxes for the same reason, and she often saw him put his pocketbook on the table and then remark dryly to the tax collector, I shall not voluntarily pay these taxes. If thee wants to rifle my pocketbook, thee can do so. To help her father with his burden of debt was now Susan's purpose in life and in the spring she again left the family circle to teach at Eunice Kenyon's Friends Seminary in New Rochelle, New York. There were twenty-eight day pupils and a few boarders at the seminary, and for long periods while Eunice Kenyon was ill, Susan took full charge. She wrote her family all the little details of her life, but their letters never came often enough to satisfy her. Occasionally she received a paper or a letter from Aaron McLean, Judge McLean's grandson, who had been her good friend and Guelma's ever since they had moved to Battenville. His letters almost always started an argument which both of them continued with zest. After hearing the Quaker preacher, Rachel Barker, she wrote him, I guess if you would hear her, you would believe in a woman's preaching. What an absurd notion that women have not intellectual and moral faculties sufficient for anything but domestic concerns. When New Rochelle welcomed President Van Buren with a parade, bands playing and crowds in the streets, this prim, self-righteous young woman took no part in this hero worship, but gave vent to her disapproval in a letter to Aaron. Disturbed over the treatment Negroes received at friends' meeting in New Rochelle, she impulsively wrote him, The people about here are anti-abolitionist and anti-everything else that's good. The friends raised quite a fuss about a colored man sitting in the meeting-house, and some left on account of it. What a lack of Christianity is this! Her school term of fifteen weeks, for which she was paid thirty dollars, was over early in September, just in time for her to be home for Guelma's wedding to Aaron McLean, 
and afterward she stayed on to teach the village school in Center Falls. This made it possible for her to join in the social life of the neighborhood. Often the young people drove to nearby villages, twenty buggies in procession. On a drive to Saratoga, her escort asked her to give up teaching to marry him. She refused, as she did again a few years later, when a Quaker elder tried to entice her with his fine house, his many acres, and his sixty cows. Although she had reached the age of twenty, when most girls felt they should be married, she was still particular. And when a friend married a man far inferior mentally, she wrote in her diary, "'Tis strange, tis passing strange that a girl possessed of common sense should be willing to marry a lunatic, but so it is. During the next few years, both she and Hannah taught school almost continuously, for two dollars to two dollars and fifty cents a week. Time and time again, Susan replaced a man who had been discharged for inefficiency. Although she made a success of the school, she discovered that she was paid only a fourth of the salary he had received, and this rankled. Almost everywhere except among Quakers, she encountered a false estimate of women which she instinctively opposed. After spending several months with relatives in Vermont, where she had the unexpected opportunity of studying algebra, she stopped over for a visit with Guelma and Aaron in Battenville, where Aaron was a successful merchant. Eagerly she told them of her latest accomplishment. Aaron was not impressed. Later at dinner, when she offered them the delicious cream biscuits which she had baked, he remarked with his most tantalizing air of male superiority, "'I'd rather see a woman make biscuits like these than solve the naughtiest problem in algebra.' "'There is no reason,' she retorted, "'why she should not be able to do both.'" End of chapter 1